This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm thrilled to introduce you to Karen McManus. Karen is a number one New York Times and international best-selling author of young adult thrillers. Her books include the One of Us is Lying series, which has been turned into a television show on Peacock, as well as standalone novels, Two Can Keep a Secret, The Cousins, You'll Be the Death of Me, and Nothing More to Tell. Karen's critically acclaimed award-winning work has been translated into more than 42 languages. And she joins me today to talk about her career and her latest book, One of Us is Back. Welcome to Unforking Your Story, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to have you here, Karen. And I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Oh, a long time ago, uh, when I was eight years old, second grade, I had a teacher who gave us an assignment to write a story. And I was a big reader. I loved to read. It had never occurred to me that I could write a story. So I thought that was just magical. I don't remember when I wrote, to be honest, but I remember really loving it. And my teacher saw that and she encouraged me. She said I should keep going, write more stories. Uh, so I did, wrote lots of different stories. And um, I kept going through grade school, middle school, even high school. But I did stop as I got older. And had a hard time finishing the more complicated, more ambitious kind of stories that I was trying to tell. And plus, no one in my life thought that it was practical to be an author, that I would ever make any money being an author. Tell me more so, about that. Like, are you talking about your parents? or? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I would say, I'm going to be an author, they would say, really? You think that's a good idea? Because, you know, it's very hard and very competitive and hardly anyone makes any money. I was like, oh, okay, Sure. Uh, and actually, that is true. <laughs> you know, like it is true. So as a fair assessment, um, you know, but my family is very practical. You know, there's not this follow your dreams and you can be the exception kind of mentality that I was raised with. It's more like pay your bills and your student loans. So um, so I did get, a, you know, very practical corporate job. And I did that for many years. And I really didn't think about writing again for a long time. Until about 2014, when I read The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, and I got really inspired for the first time in a long time to try writing again. Yeah, it sounds like you you caught fire, to, to uh, <laughs> part, pardon the pun. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Massachusetts okay. and still live, but I grew up in the suburbs and now I live in Cambridge right outside Boston. 
I had asked because I grew up in Plantation, Florida, and my kindergarten teacher was Mrs. McManus. Oh, really? Um, that's going back, you know, to 19, probably 79 or something like that. But uh, I assume there's no relation there. So. I don't think so. No, it's my married name. <laughs> okay. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you you so you so read The Hunger Games, you and then what, do you volunteer as tribute to, to write your own <laughs> uh, full-length young adult novel? Or, you know, bridge, you know, bridge... From reading the Hunger Games to kind of putting together yeah. your your first published work, and you know, I think there's there's even a little more to it than that. I guess um, a few years before my husband passed away um, unexpectedly, and he was quite young, and obviously that's going to really hit you and your family quite hard. And one of the things I thought about all the time was all the things that he didn't get to do. And so I would think a lot over the years as I'm like raising our son and just sort of chugging along, I was thinking I should do the things I always wanted to do. What are they? <laughs> and I thought about writing a book, but I didn't have any ideas. So you just put that in the back of your mind and you keep grinding away at all the things you have to do every day. So it was kind of in the back of my mind that I wanted to do that. And so I think my brain was really ready you know, to, to get excited about the Hunger Games, um, to feel that bit of inspiration that I had been lacking um, and to actually have an idea. And granted, that idea was a very bad knockoff of the Hunger Games, <laughs> but at least it got me started, you know, and got me writing again and creating again. And it was kind of like turning on a faucet. It was just like it flowed and it was really fun. And so I kept doing it, even though that story was, you know, never going to be the story that did anything for me professionally, but it did get me back into the world and connected with other writers and on the path to getting published eventually. Yeah. So, I mean, even though that story wasn't published or, or shopped around or, or the one that got you an agent, it still had a purpose, which was, hey, it, it's it's getting you to, to flex that muscle again. Exactly. Uh, and you and know, I learned and, a lot about craft. You know, I did not I've never taken a creative writing class because I did sort of set it aside even before college. Hadn't ever read a book on craft. Um, I've just read lots of books. And so that practice was me learning how to write a book, um, how to develop characters, um, what pacing is, um, you know, how to make a plot work for an entire 350 page book. So it was a lot of kind of self-teaching by doing. And I did query that book. I, you know, had high hopes for it. Because you, you don't know what you don't know as a new writer. I was not fully aware of how much work that book needed. So I put it out there and it got roundly rejected. But that was also a learning experience, just researching agents and who's the right fit for me and how do you approach them and what kind of package do you need? So all of that, I just figured it out by doing it. You know, there's a lesson there for aspiring authors, which is, hey, sometimes the, the first thing you try and write, you know, may sit in a drawer. Yeah. Um, you know, it may not go anywhere, but it gets you to sort of the, the, the next stage or the next step. Um, yeah, I get approached by so many, you know, my friends are always saying, oh, can you talk to, you know, this person who wants to write a book? They have a book. They don't know where to take it next. And I'm always happy to talk to them. And I always wonder how honest I should be, because as new writers, we love that first book. But the reality is that first book is probably not going to get you published. You are a rare beast if that first book gets you published. It's just most of us don't do our best work in that first book. We don't know enough. Um you know, we probably haven't studied the market enough. 
I didn't even bother to Google whether or not dystopian was still a genre people wanted. I just wrote it. And that was a unpleasant surprise <laughs> six months later to learn that it was basically, you know, dead because it had been oversaturated. Like, so there's you know, this balance where you, you want to encourage people because truly I am a big believer that if you want to get published, you can figure out a way to make it happen. I am seeing perseverance pay off for so many people, but it usually takes time and it usually takes more than one book. Yeah. Um, when, so w which one was the first book uh, that you wrote that actually went to, you know, went to sale? Um, that was one of us is lying. Okay. So that, yes, that is, that's, that's the first one. Um, yeah, it was the third you, book I had written, but the first one that anybody had any interest in. Andrew, how did you come up with the idea behind that? I was driving to work. Um, I used to work as a marketing director for a font company, and it was like half an hour away from my house. So I drove there every day and I listened to the radio and the theme song from The Breakfast Club came on. You know, and I'm an 80s kid. So it was it Don't You Forget About Me? Was it that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, love that song. And I just started thinking about how that whole narrative construct of forcing people together who seem like they have nothing in common and they have to interact and they realize maybe they're not so different after all. That's just sort of evergreen. And then it could be kind of fun to put a dark twist on a story like that. And the phrase, The Breakfast Club with Murder, popped into my head. And I just started thinking, and I'm still driving, well, how would you kill somebody in detention and have nobody know that you did it? And I thought of a potential way. And then I thought, okay, but why would you do it? And that's when the character started taking shape. And I was just completely gripped by the idea all day at work. There's, you know, there's the public facing side of me that's doing my work and leading meetings and, you know, Everything I'm supposed to be doing in the back of my mind is like Abby Bronwyn, Nate Cooper. And, you know, it, I had almost a whole outline in my head by the time I got home. Wow. You know, it's it's interesting. So that just that the Breakfast Club with murder, um, that that was how I think your publicist pitched you to me. Um, uh -huh. And I'm like, OK, well, you just invoked the name of probably one of my favorite movies ever made. Yeah. Um, so how could I say no to this? But that's, you know, I, I just I love that movie. Because it's so simple. I mean, it's yes. simple and it's complex, but it's like one setting, one day, you know, five, four or five characters. Um, but it's 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 almost like a flawless movie, um, flawless writing. I mean, John Hughes did such a great job on that screenplay. Oh, I'm a huge fan, you know. And and one of the things that I learned too from my two unsuccessful books is that those books were always very hard for me to explain to anyone. If someone mm. said, "What's your book about?" I would be like, "Well, it's a, blah, blah, blah. it would be like a paragraph of stuff." And it, you know, if I, it's a classic elevator pitch, where if I had ten seconds to tell someone, no, I'd be a goner. That's not enough time. In this, I was always like, well, it's like The Breakfast Club, but with murder. And everybody gets that. And as a marketing person, I, I did kind of instantly see that there was a lot of benefit to a hook like that. People would get it. I wouldn't have to spend a lot of time explaining it. You know, some people would already have a good association. Some people would maybe have a bad association, but they would know what I meant. And a lot of the heavy lifting would already be done. And then I could just explain the rest of the story. Yeah, I mean, and even though, you know, it's it's a young adult novel, kids in that age group know the Breakfast Club, you know, so they they'll, they'll they get it, too. They and get their it parents do. So it's like right. a generational thing, which is really nice and has benefited my books as a whole. Yeah.
Yeah, I have three 21 year olds at home. Um, so they are, you know, maybe they're aging out a little bit from from young adult. I don't know. Um, they still read it, you know, yeah. you know, and I, I when I when I told my daughter, Maggie, you know, who I was interviewing this afternoon, she's like, no way. Like, <laughs> way. Um, so, well, what can you tell us about One of Us is Back? This book is it's interesting to me because it uh, came entirely from a plot thread that I had to cut out of One of Us is Lying. When I first got my agent, um, she didn't want to make big changes to the book because she felt like it was pretty strong and the right editor would have a vision for it. So she didn't want to spend a lot of time uh, changing it. But she did feel like this one plot thread that I had created to explain why a certain antagonist does what they do was distracting. Um, and she was 100% right. It was disconnected from the rest of the book. It didn't fit. Every time I moved over there to you know deepen it some more, it just... The story lost energy. Um, and I said, okay, that makes total sense. But like, how are people going to know why this person did what they did? And she said, well, you have to make them the kind of person who would do that. And I thought that was so brilliant and it worked really well. But in the back of my mind, there was always more story. Um, and of course, the book take off in a, took off in a way that no one expected, including me. Um, so my publisher asked for a sequel. I delivered One of Us is Next, um, and that was you know based on different characters. And then readers kept asking me for more. Is there more? And I thought, okay, could there be more? And that's when I started really thinking about that red I had cut out. And I thought, to me, that's always part of the story, and I never got to tell it. Could I make it its own book? Is there enough there? Um, and so I stress tested that with my agents, um, did a lot of outlining, figured out how can you make something that was meant to happen with the original book relevant to these characters now. Um, and I felt like I found a way. So ultimately, I think it allowed me to tell the full story that I'd always meant to tell. Um, but at a time when these characters are so much more they're more deep, they're more developed, their bonds are different than that original book. So it was really a, a fun way to come full circle. Do you think you could have taken that criticism or you made that observation that that plot point, that thread was, you know, not working in, in that original manuscript? Could you have taken it without having gone through the journey of, of writing a couple of, of books that that didn't go anywhere? Um, I'm, I'm just curious as to you know, because some people might get really defensive about that and, and yeah. you know, really fight for it. Um, it sounds like you were you were in agreement, but but I'm just curious as to, you know, could, could you have done that without having gone through the journey you went through? I think it helped for sure. Um, it also helped that I trusted her 100 percent, you know, like even though we just started working together, I really believed in her vision and in her taste. Um, but I've never been too precious about my work. I have a pretty thick skin. And yeah, I remember when I was querying that first book and I was just all over social media trying to get advice and like, why is no one wanting this book? And there was this one agent who tweeted something, you know, about querying. And she said, well, sometimes you just have to write a better book. And I was like, oh, that is what I have to do. She's right. It's not good enough. You know, so there was an instant of defensiveness, like, this is the best book I can write. What are you talking about? And then it was, no, no, she's right. It's not good enough. And that was when I shelved that book and was like, okay, let's come up with something new. Yeah, you, you got to keep your ego in check a bit. Well, I have uh, a business-like approach, too, I think, because mm. that was my background before I 
did all of this. So, you know, I, I love the creative side. I feel passionate about my stories, but I also understand it's a business, you know, and if I want the story to reach an audience, I have to take that into account. Uh, but I also love this idea that you can take something out of a manuscript and and kind of put it aside. And, you know, at some point, maybe it gets a little water, a little sunshine, a little yeah. fertilizer, and then it blossoms into something else when the time is right for it. Yeah. And there, that time wasn't the second book. Like, I was not prepared, first of all, to go back into the minds of my original characters with that book. That just didn't feel like something I could do when their story had ended kind of exactly where I wanted them to. And so I needed some time before I was ready to dive back into their realities. Um, so that was part of it, too, is it just wasn't the right time to revisit that. But, but the time did come, and I'm happy with how it turned out. I'm curious, what's it like uh, or what's your involvement working on The Peacock Show? Are you a consultant on that? Do you do any, any writing for it, or is, is it kind of out of your hands? Yeah, it's pretty out of my hands. Um, it was a, interesting the way it was kind of um, the way it all sort of happened because the pilot was greenlit first, not the rest of the series, just the pilot. And I felt like I was pretty involved in that. I mean, I was just a consultant, so I was not a producer. I didn't write, but I did see a lot of script iterations, had a pretty good sense of what was happening, had a chance to visit the set right before COVID hit. Uh, which was nice. So that's a cool experience, you know, for an author to have. But I didn't really know where they were planning on taking the rest of the series. I'm not sure they knew because no one knew if there was going to be a series. Um, and then when that got greenlit, I was not very involved in um, where they took it. I didn't really know what they had planned until most of the scripts were written. So at that point, it's kind of like they did show them to me, which was nice, but it's sort of like, if someone makes a cake and then they ask for your opinion on the icing, you know, like you can still impact the flavor and the appearance of that cake, but you're not, the cake is baked. Right. It's, there's only so much you can do. Right. Right. Um, but I have to imagine it's a neat experience. And I know some authors whose, whose, you know, work has gone to, you know, seven, eight seasons on, on TV and they have to divorce themselves from it because, you know, the whoever's running the show is got a completely different vision than than what the author thought. So, um, yeah, that's what I did for the second season. And it only ran for two seasons that they get canceled. But the second season, they decided to just go in a completely different direction. And because I was working on one of us is back and kind of coming up with my own continuation of the story, I thought, I don't think. I think it would be very creatively confusing for me to be involved in any way with what you're doing over there. So we just kind of did, you know, the separation thing and I've been focused on the books. Yeah, very cool. Well, I always like to to get to know my guests a little bit through pop culture. And we talked a little bit about pop culture with The Breakfast Club earlier, but I'm curious, uh, when you were growing up, Karen, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Oh, gosh, when I was growing up. Um I mean, I love John Hughes, you know, obviously. Um, big favorite there. I liked like big sweeping fantasy stuff, you know, both to read and to watch. Loved Star Wars. <laughs> Loved Indiana Jones, like big adventure type movies, um, but character driven. And I was always a big mystery fan. So I loved, um, not so much on TV, 
but I would read a ton of, you know, Nancy Drew, Agatha Christie, my mom's books that she had lying around. So Stephen King and Mary Higgins Clark, uh, some of which went above my head, but I still enjoyed the, the mystery aspect. Yeah, reading some of those early Stephen King novels as a young person, you know, you do miss some of the, uh, well, I don't want to say nuance. Um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I had I had questions. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had questions after I read it. Yeah. Um, but um, did you ever get into like uh, detective shows, anything like that? Was, was that in your wheelhouse or no? Less so, probably. And yeah. All right. So favorite authors then? Who did you grow up loving to read? You mentioned Nancy Drew. Um, yeah. But... Agatha Christie, for sure. Um, big fan. Um, I used to love, and it was a bunch of different authors, but I love the Sweet Valley High series. That was like nib to me. I think yeah. I read all of those books. And at one point, they, they made the twins mystery. They were like detectives. So that was even better as far as I was concerned. Um, so those were great. I think I even tried, like, I saw some ad to write for those when I was, like, a college graduate. And that was, like, the only time I was like, ooh, maybe I should try writing again. But I never did anything with it. But uh, that was the first time I realized Francine Pascal was maybe not a real person or was a real person, but didn't write all the books. So I did not understand much about publishing at that point. Right. Right. Well, what about music? What did you like uh, listening to growing up? Oh, I was a big, like, you know, it was alternative back then. It's not anymore, but I loved the Smiths when I was in high school. I loved the Cure. I loved Kate Bush. I'm really happy to see her having a moment again. <laughs> I know. Stranger Things did wonders for her, right? It's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing what one scene, you know, not one scene, I guess, but one season can do for yeah. a song. Yeah, I have that song on a running playlist. I just ran a race on the fourth and I timed it just so like I hit a hill right when that song comes on. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's so good. It's it's uh, it's awesome. But yeah, the Smiths, you know, who is that? Uh, Morrissey, right? Who's the lead singer of the Smiths? Uh, yeah, Morrissey and Johnny Marr is a guitarist. I used to love Johnny Marr. He's very, very talented. Yeah, very cool. Do you have a favorite place where you like to read? You know, I'm a homebody. So I have a little deck off of my office, which is kind of like really nice because trees sort of overhang it. So it's like a little bit sunny, but not ever really hot. And so I like to sit there as long as I'm not on my my Kindle with an actual physical book is the best in the sunshine. Yeah. What about a favorite place to, to write? Right here in my office. You know, when I first started writing, I was doing it at night um, when my son was in bed because he was younger then so it was you know he was very he took a lot of logistical <laughs> driving and feeding and all of that stuff um i could never get to i could never write anything until about nine o'clock at night um so i had to be at my house because he's he's asleep and it didn't look like this at the time but i would just sit down in a little space and and just work away i got to be really good at writing you know, wherever I could find a moment. So sometimes I would sneak in a chapter, like get one of his baseball games or something like that. Yeah. Hopefully you don't miss like the home run or something like that, you know? <laughs> You're like, good job, honey. Yay. <laughs> um, you know, I know you mentioned your your husband died suddenly. Um, did you find writing to be therapeutic at all for you? Yeah, kind of. I think it was um, 
it was the first time I did anything for myself, you know, for a really long time because um, my son was very young when his dad died. And so you just kind of in survival mode, you know, for, for a long time. It's just so busy. Uh, and there's so much to do. And your your own interests and wants and needs just kind of get shoved aside. You're like, okay, I'll worry about that later some other day when I have time. Um, so this was really the first time in a long time I had done something purely because it was fun and not because it was going to be helpful to someone else or I needed to do it or even I was getting paid to do it. You know, it was nice that eventually that came, but it was purely for enjoyment and and the excitement of learning something new and rediscovering joy in a thing that I had loved but thought was not a part of my life anymore. Yeah, I think that's that's like a sign of, you know, when you when you do something you love and you're not getting reimbursed for it and you're spent, you know, in the in the short term. Yeah. And but you're spending like hours and hours and hours of time doing it. That's that's where I think, you know, like that's like a magical feeling. It you know, is. You're not necessarily getting anything out of it, except you're feeding your soul somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's so great that it worked out right and and now i get paid to do this but honestly there's something very pure <laughs> about just doing it because it it felt magical you know it felt uh transportive at a time when i really needed it yeah well uh my last big question for you um is uh it's kind of a deep one which is um i call it dear younger me so if you could if you could whisper something into the ear of that um eight-year-old you know, younger version of you who who wrote that story in second grade, which got the ball rolling from that, you know, that, that teacher who encouraged you. What are some of the things that you would share with the younger Karen? I would tell her to let someone else tell her no. Um, because I was a kid who told myself no a lot. Like, oh, you can't do this. You know, I just decided I couldn't. And then I didn't. Um, and writing is a great example of, you know, no one, I mean, people didn't encourage me to do it, but no one sat me down and said, stop writing. <laughs> I made the choice to do that. Uh, and who knows what I might have created had I not done that. Um, it took being fully formed adult who had been through a lot in life to be like, you know what? I am fine with you rejecting me, with a hundred of you rejecting me. That is okay. <laughs> I am going to keep doing what I'm doing because I do have faith that I will get better at some point and at some point I will break through. So go ahead, you know, give me your worst. Yeah. Well, that's uh, some, some great words of advice. Let, let other people tell, you no. doesn't have to be you. Yeah. Yeah. I got enough. There's enough of that. You know, you will, you will hear it enough from other people. Um, and it doesn't mean being unrealistic, you know, it doesn't mean not working on your craft and, and getting better and, you know, listening to the feedback, whatever, level of feedback you may be getting to to improve um but that means you just got to keep putting yourself out there if you want something especially in a competitive field you got to put your work out there and you know be willing to um to go through the the hard grinds of hearing a lot of no's before you get to that yes the hard grind i think we've got the name of uh, of this episode so, <laughs> there you have it um karen this has been so much fun talking to you um yeah. I'm I'm curious if people listening want to reach out to you, follow you on social media. Do you have Twitter, Instagram, anything like that you want to share with people? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm active mostly on Instagram, um, writer KMC there, and actually now on threads because <laughs> that just integrated and they made it really easy. So I'm there too. Um, I have an updates account on Twitter, so I do share content there, but I'm not as active. And that's the same handle, writer KMC. Very good. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes so people don't have to to worry about writing that down as they listen in their car or at the gym or wherever it is people listen to this. I have no idea. Great. Um, But uh, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story, Karen, and letting me uncork yours. My pleasure. It was great speaking with you. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.